Good morning, and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Amy Shepard, and I'm here with my co-host, Julie Dye. The Morning Fix is a podcast series brought to you by the 510K Cafe. We interview medical technology leaders to discuss trends, innovations, and the future of marketing and communications in the medtech industry. Today, we are speaking with Jennifer Jones-McMeans, PhD. Jennifer is the Divisional Vice President of Global Clinical Affairs at Abbott Vascular. She is here to chat with us today about a unique study that Abbott is sponsoring in the PAD space or peripheral artery disease. They are focusing on bringing more diversity and inclusion to that study. Yes, welcome, Jennifer. We're so thrilled to speak with you today, and we always love to kick off our conversations with learning more about our guests' backgrounds and career paths. Absolutely. Well, um, again, my name is uh, Jennifer Jones McMeans. Um, I do have my uh, PhD, and so I would say maybe I'll take you back to um, maybe that journey of where I was at University of Maryland College Park, and that's where I got my doctorate uh, in the Department of Kinesiology, but with a specific focus on exercise physiology and disease models. So we looked at hypertension, high cholesterolemia, and the impact of exercise on these diseases, but also with a twist of looking at genetics and how patient genetics um, played into some of the changes we were seeing in blood pressure, cholesterol, or other type of biomarkers associated with these chronic conditions. And after that, uh, I wanted to do more work in the area of hypertension, but maybe switch in which I was looking at drug trials, drug trial development. And so I did a three-year postdoctoral fellowship at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in the Division of Hypertension, where I got a great education in patient care, clinical trials, uh, you know, blended in with clinical practice and how patients with Severe forms of hypertension were being treated as well as other chronic diseases um, such as diabetes and heart failure. And following that, I had the opportunity to come work here at Abbott as a new, um, you know, kind of wet behind the ears scientist uh, in the um, division in our vascular business, I should say, where I, I am today. And we were working on uh, our drug looting stents. There were some other new technologies that it moved, didn't move forward, but the main business with Abbott at that time, about almost 15 years ago, was drug looting stent technology. And so I've been with the company, uh, like I said, 14 to 15 years. Uh, now I have the pleasure and privilege of being the divisional vice president of the global clinical affairs group that I uh, initially started with and was hired um, as a scientist. And we are, our technologies have expanded beyond the drug eluding stent to drug eluding resorbable technologies for um, the lower limbs, such as to, to treat peripheral artery disease. We also have our newer technologies for, uh, for I would say, assessing uh, the vasculature internally through the optical coherence uh, tomography, OCT. And so it's really been a very fun, interesting journey that's continuing to evolve. I love hearing um, about how you, you you sort of went from academia and, um, you know, that type of work in healthcare, um, you know, over to industry. And so, you know, you certainly have had a unique pathway. We've heard a little bit about a clinical study that is um, in the works right now, the LIFE BTK or LIFE Below the Knee trial. And 
We're really interested in how that study is trying to make sure that it's got a real diverse patient population involved in the study. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the study is looking at and how that diversity piece is is playing out? Yes, I would love to do that. So we're conducting the LIFE BTK trial, which is evaluating a new therapy uh, which is part of our drug resorbable, uh, drug eluding resorbable scaffold uh, therapies that treat uh, peripheral artery disease or in the most severe form called critical limb ischemia uh, that is occurring in the arteries below the knee. So a little background on peripheral artery disease is that it's, it, it's a disease similar to what you see in the heart, but it is impacting those arteries outside of the heart. So the same type of atherosclerosis that occurs in the heart and leads to heart disease, it happens outside of the heart. And it can, particularly when you look at the lower limbs, so such as the, the you know, the legs, uh, the leg from the hip to the knee and then below the knee, you know, this disease that many times the disease is not well known and there's a lack of awareness that it can occur among the patient, among just the total population, and especially among patients, like people may not actually have symptoms initially, and they then may, maybe they have symptoms such as pain uh, upon walking or pain upon rest, but they're not really recognizing that they are in, that they have peripheral artery disease or in the most severe form of critical limb ischemia. And it's, it can be very debilitating. And then unfortunately, the time when they do finally present to their physician and there's an awareness both from patient to physician that they have PAD, it can be at a point where um, there's been wound development or there's lack of flow and there's going to need to be an intervention. Now for a below the knee disease, um, which we are studying the evaluation of uh, with our uh, drug eluding resorbable scaffold, which is called DRS and is under investigation with the Food and Drug Administration, what we do know is that current standard of care in the United States is uh, not the most um, contemporary in which uh, interventional procedures, uh, so we're going to put to the side the surgical that can occur, but these minimally invasive interventional procedures where they can put a what we call a balloon catheter below um, through the femoral artery down past the top of the leg through, you know, down to the lower part of the leg below the knee and those arteries, this balloon is used to push that plaque to the side and open up the blood vessels, the arteries in order to get good blood flow to the muscles and tissues. Cause that's essential. And that's a, what's actually effectively occurring in PAD and CLI and that there is not good blood flow because, you know, those arteries are, are laden with plaque. And so with this therapy um, that we're about, so we're evaluating um, with the FDA of whether or not this therapy of um, this resorbable technology will be better than plain balloon angioplasty, which pushes the plaque aside. And is it more sustainable over time? Now, one thing we do know in general, the prevalence of um, PAD in the United States is uh, pretty high, which it's expected, which is estimated to be um, anywhere from about, uh, I would say, over the age of forty. You've seen numbers about about eight eight million or so, eight point five or so million. However, um, there is a disproportionate burden of the disease on people of color, and what we do know is that. 
African-Americans have a very high risk of PAD. Similarly, the Latino community has a high risk as well as the Native American community. And what makes this even more problematic, when you look at the African-American community, they have some of the higher rates of amputations of of their lower limbs. And these amputations, many times they are actually preventable and not warranted. And the challenge is with amputations, this is actually an increased risk for death over time when a person gets an amputation. So really the goal with treating uh, CLI and or PAD is to prevent this, um, you know, the, the um, deterioration and the progression of the disease to where a person would actually uh, have to get a, a amputation. So with seeing these populations that um, of color that are impacted, you know, Abbott really had to take a stance. And, and in general, I, I want to make a statement that Abbott is very committed to diversity and inclusion in clinical trials and that we have to ensure that those patients that are in our trials are representing those who are um, very much disproportionately impacted by this disease. And so this is a perfect example with like BTK. Uh, and so we've just, you know, this has been a great trial to demonstrate the work on DNI that can be done within the context of a clinical trial. Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, I don't know if you've been following, but within the last week or so, um, something has really blown up on social media. There's a medical illustrator who had publicized that he was one of the very first people to do a medical illustration of an African-American mother. Um, And you see the baby in utero and the baby's African-American and everybody just had like this aha moment. It's like, it's astounding that, you know, in healthcare, there's so many aspects that, you know, we as industry are are just sort of thinking more about, right, as it relates to diversity. Um, so we're really, you know, thrilled to know that Abbott is really putting a lot of effort to make sure that the study is accurately you know, representative of the people who are really suffering from these conditions. So we appreciate hearing more about that. So do you find that it's more difficult to recruit patients for clinical studies when those patients are from diverse backgrounds? And why is that? Yes, it can be challenging. We do know that uh, communities of color, um, individuals from diverse backgrounds, there can be challenges when it comes to their participation in clinical trials. And in, even just in participation with the healthcare system, um, part of this does happen because of what's happened historically to many communities of color. We know that there are situations associated like with the Henrietta Lacks story that happened years ago uh, that has been communicated from one generation to the next, which has created fear and participation and in, in, uh, basically in healthcare. Um, what One thing, though, that we believe that we can do at a company such as Abbott is that when we conduct our clinical trials, we can put time, energy, and an intention into ensuring that we create a system where there are physicians from diverse backgrounds or those who are dedicated or um, invested in these communities to be participants in the clinical trials, which helps people to be seen, patients to to feel seen as they consider whether or not they would want to participate in a clinical trial. 
as we're talking about the complexity of, you know, these issues around healthcare and reaching these underserved populations, um, we were speaking with Dr. Alyssa Ochoa mm-hmm. in San Antonio um, last week, and she talked to us a little bit about healthcare literacy being another important thing that we all need to think about. And so, you know, a lot of our listeners, as well as Amy and myself, are healthcare communicators. And so how can we better communicate um, to all different kinds of audiences about clinical studies and healthcare conditions, you know, to help improve that healthcare literacy? I'm going to use a simple statement that I've heard for some time now. Speak to your to the patients in plain language. And, and I know it sounds very simplistic, but we do probably get caught up in a lot of the intricacies of what we're doing. And have we sat back and simply, in plain language, and the speak of the community, talked about what the disease was and what the treatment options are. And I think that actually would be one very helpful and critical piece to with with the concerns around health literacy. And I, I guess I would also add though, I'm not sure at times we are also just asking the patient or the population or, or community, what is it that you need to hear to help you, you know, understand this condition or what the new therapies are that actually could help you. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, many times we take a position of we think we know for the community, but that the community can tell us, like, this is what I need. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. Beyond clinical studies, where do you see opportunities for improvement in health equality? This is a very good question. I would say uh, it's almost as though you need the repeated um, conversation around disease awareness. I think that's one item. And that, you know, I said, I just answered before, I said, you know, it's some, sometimes it's as simple as plain language and having the repeated conversations to help people understand um, where these, uh, I would say, issues around health are and making sure though you're doing it in the environment that is comfortable to the population. But I think secondly, it, it's really ensuring that we're including and we're we're training up uh, the, you know, physicians to really know how to participate with these communities. You know, one thing that Abbott has recently done with uh, our DNI work is that we're investing five million dollars over five years for approximately three hundred scholarships to historically black colleges and universities that have medical schools, the National Black Nurses Association, the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, in which we really are taking the time to be intentional and invest in these institutions that can actually develop and train the next generation of researchers, researchers that look like the communities in need. Because we know that when patients see themselves in the medical care system with the physician or the nurse, I think that is just one area where you improve access and equity. And then also with the, you know, the community of physicians that we have now who are working very hard also reaching out to them to give them the tools and the educated education needed to support these uh, populations. Thank you so much for sharing your insight on that. You know, we've talked a lot about 
diversity in clinical studies, um, you know, since that was the focus of our episode, but we'd also like to know about any other emerging trends um, that you see in clinical research, you know, is there new technology that's helping, you know, do things better is, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, is that helping or, you know, is there another big sort of trend that we as as medical device marketers should you know, think about over the next, you know, two two to five years? Well, you, you read my mind a little because one of my first answers was going to be um, the application of machine learning and AI. I think that has great potential to help us take our clinical trials to the next level to, number one, use it as a tool to actually help forecast, you know, um, what our enrollment would look like for certain therapies in a trial. But I think number two, um, also understanding once we get our data, how to use that uh, data to actually predict who would be best for certain treatments. Because many times when we conduct a trial and finish the data, you know, we do our standard statistical analyses, but there's much more power in doing machine learning and using this type of modeling to uh, identify trends and predictions that we would not normally think of just, you know, kind of with the, with the human brain. And so I think there's a lot of power in AI and machine learning. And then I also think that there's a lot of power with improvement of diagnostics and, you know, we can make some of the best, um, uh, medical devices that are implanted in patients, but we also need the tools for diagnostic accuracy in order to, uh, support, uh, the work of um, of what the actually medical devices can do. Yes, yes, yes. I know that. I I think that makes complete sense, and I think it's something that's really essential for um, for our industry um, and for our listeners. So, thank you for your insights there, Jennifer. Uh, talking about PAD, if if our listeners or someone they know has PAD, where can they find out more about the Life BTK study? Wonderful question. Individuals, if they're interested, they can actually go to our website that we created for the patients. It's life, L-I-F-E dash BTK.com. And it was created simply for this. You know, I talked about plain language, being able to actually have a site, a a clinical, I mean, excuse me, a website that is actually um, developed for the patients and their families and for patients to feel like they're being seen and learn about the disease, learn about potential therapies and learn about clinical trials. So that was the whole intent of this website. So I would love it if uh, your listeners were interested. And I'll say it again. It's life-btk.com. And we will put that in our show notes as well. Okay. So when we uh, push this episode out, people will have access to that because we want to make sure that you know, the right people are connected and, and, and have access to this important study. So we have one kind of fun question that we ask everybody at the end of each podcast episode. And since you're here on the morning fix, we would love to know what you do for your morning fix. How do you get going? Well, I, I have to say that I'm very big, both my husband and I, um, in one of the first things we do before we're leaving the house is uh, exercise. So you can either catch me on the treadmill or uh, cycling or doing um, like some weights or something. So it's really my morning fix is exercise. 
We love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. And again, thank you for being here. We appreciate your time and hearing more about the great work that Abbott is doing in the clinical area. And thank you to everyone who's out there listening to our podcast. And we will be back with even more MedTech leaders. Thanks again.